Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Breaking news. The remains of five late-term aborted babies will reportedly be destroyed and with no chance of an autopsy, which could have determined if their deaths violated federal law. We bring you up to speed with the latest. A rare reach across the aisle. Lawmakers' bipartisan support to pass a child tax credit, the refunds proposed, and the challenges the package faces. Women at the polls. A recent survey indicates that access to abortion is not a key factor for women as they prepare to head to the election booths. We discuss. Honoring a decades-long leader in the pro-life movement. Professor Helen Alvarez is awarded at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast for her pro-life witness. She explains the next steps in defense of life. These babies' bodies are evidence of federal crime, and it is extremely obvious that the DOJ is trying to cover this up. We're following breaking news out of Washington, D.C. The remains of five late-term aborted babies, dubbed the DC-5, will reportedly be destroyed amid calls for an autopsy to determine if the babies were killed in violation of the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. A secular pro-life group called the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, or POW, claims they obtained the remains from medical waste being disposed of an outside clinic in 2022. Members said they hoped an autopsy by investigators would prove these babies lost their lives through illegal late-term abortions. Some of the members of PAL were arrested and subsequently incarcerated for blocking access to the clinic back in 2020, before they found the bodies of these children. While those arrests made headlines, nothing happened with the bodies of the DC-5 for almost two years. I'm joined now by Caroline Smith, executive director of the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, also known as POW. She has the details on the DC-5's whereabouts. Caroline, thanks for being here. Your lawyers told you that they received a communication from the DC Medical Examiner's Office this week. Can you tell us what they relayed? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. So on Monday evening, we received word from our attorneys that they had been contacted by the DC medical examiner. And that is where um, the remains of the babies have been for the past two years. Um, They were told on Monday that they had received direction from the Department of Justice to dispose of those remains at the end of this week. Um, As soon as we heard this from our attorneys, we jumped into action. We have made a lot of progress in the past 48 hours, Mm. but um, things are still very much up in the air and there's a lot of work to be done. These babies cannot be destroyed. They are not only human beings who deserve to have a burial and a funeral, but they also are the evidence of federal crimes in Washington, D.C. And very clear that this evidence is trying to be covered. Yeah, and the medical examiner initially came into possession of these babies' bodies, as you're mentioning, back in 2022. So, Caroline, why is this happening now? That's a really good question. Um, Obviously, we can't know anything for sure, but it seems very clear to us that the DOJ um, understands that these are pretty significant evidence um, of Cesare Santangelo committing federal crimes. And it's very clear to us that they are collaborating with the um, 
the DOJ, the medical examiner, the police department, the mayor's office, as well as the abortion industry to do everything they can to protect these late-term abortionists, um, especially Cesare Santangelo. Um, we are pretty certain it has to do with the upcoming sentencing of the rescuers that you mentioned earlier. Their sentencing is in May. Yeah. And these babies provide clear evidence that this abortionist was performing illegal abortions. So, of course, they would do everything they can to try to cover up the evidence. Yeah, that's very interesting. And and your position, Caroline, is that it's crucial that these autopsies happen, given that they could be evidence. Given the DOJ's unwillingness to investigate this matter going on two years now, though, mm -hmm. do you think that the man who carried out these abortions, Cesare Santangelo, would ever be held accountable, even if these autopsies do happen? Well, that's a good question. Um, I believe so. And we are actually calling on Congress to hold congressional hearings for these babies in which they would have to bring the killer in to testify wow. against his actions. Mm -hmm. um, we believe that these babies deserve to have a congressional hearing in that is one of the asks that we are talking to members of Congress today. Um, this is you know, what issue could be more important right now for the pro-life movement? And so um, that is that is what we are aiming for. There are many steps that need to happen right before that and immediately in order for these babies to be preserved. But we are ultimately aiming for congressional hearings for these children to hold their killer accountable. Yeah. And I know that today you're going onto the Hill to, to talk to members about this. Can you tell me a little mm -hmm. bit more about the reaction, the response that you've gotten from members of Congress based on this latest development that we've heard this week? Yeah. So we were on the Hill all day yesterday and we will be all day today as well. Um, we have built together a coalition of um, pro-life organizations, and we're all going to be going together. Um, you know, we've been going and lobbying to these representatives for almost two years now, begging them to do something to understand the importance of this issue. Um, and they understand the importance, but it hasn't been until this week that they've understood the urgency. And I have been encouraged by responses we have gotten. Um, we have gotten many important meetings that we're going to today. Um, and it's been encouraging the responses we've gotten. However, we need to see follow through and we need to see immediate and prompt action. Otherwise, what, um, what are we going to be able to do? So sure. we have specific asks laid out. It is very possible for these babies to be preserved, for them to be taken out of the hands of the DOJ and for them to receive congressional hearings. But we need members of Congress to act immediately. Sure. Real quick, Caroline, before I let you go, how can people help? Real quick, we have about 20 seconds. Um, if someone please, watching this. Yeah, please call and email and tweet your representatives um, as much as possible. Do not let up the pressure. We need to keep the pressure on until something happens. Great. Thanks, Caroline. Caroline Smith Thanks of POW. Our sister organization, the Catholic News Agency, has more information on this story. Visit the Catholic News Agency's website to read Joe Bacurus's article. The child tax credit is uh, essential for many families. It certainly doesn't go far enough, but it is better than what we have. 
an unusual accomplishment in the House, a rare show of strong bipartisan support in the passing of a roughly $79 billion tax cut bill. The package would enhance the child tax credit for millions of lower-income families by increasing the maximum refundable amount per child over the next three years, including the one currently underway, provided the bill quickly passes the Senate. Right now, the credit is $2,000 per child, but not all of that is refundable. The bill would incrementally raise the amount of the credit available as a refund, increasing it to $1,800 for 2023 tax returns, $1,900 for the following year, and $2,000 for 2025 tax returns. The package is running into some Republican resistance in the Senate. Some of the concerns include wanting to strengthen work requirements for the child tax credit and finding a different way to pay for the expanded tax break. The bill has yet to be approved by the Senate before it can head to President Biden's desk for his signature. And Vice President Kamala Harris continues to call on Congress to codify abortion during a nationwide abortion tour. At her first stop in Georgia, the crux of the message was to call out pro-life lawmakers for advancing a heartbeat bill and call for the reinstatement of Roe v. Wade. At each of these stops and in the kickoff statement of her tour, she labels pro-life Americans and lawmakers as extremists. The current tour is the sequel to an eight-state college tour that the VP embarked on last year. Joe Biden and I are fighting in court to protect women's access to medication and emergency care. We are protecting the right of women to travel for abortion care and fighting for access to free contraception. The First Lady also took part in the campaign to, quote, accelerate progress on women's health. But while the Biden administration believes abortion will motivate voters, a recent study found that that may not translate to the election booth. A small survey of 30 women in Pennsylvania who said they voted for Donald Trump in 2020 shared that while they support abortion in some cases, most of them still plan to vote for Trump again in 2024. Their reasoning? access to abortion just isn't as important as other matters. The findings from the focus groups produced in collaboration with Syracuse University, Sago, and Engageus as part of an NBC News series also found that most participants said they were comfortable with a limit on abortion after 15 weeks, with exceptions for rape, incest, and if a mother's health is at risk. Former President Trump has favored exemptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother, and has not agreed to sign a national ban if he makes it to the White House. To discuss this, I'm joined by Susan Crabtree, national political correspondent at Real Clear Politics. Susan, thanks for being here. Let's just start with your initial reaction to this survey. If women are not primarily concerned about the legality of abortion, what is at the forefront of their minds? Well, I think in that particular focus group, you were dealing with Trump supporters. And Trump supporters do not um, list and prioritize abortion as their main concern. Obviously, uh, Trump supporters would support, be concerned about immigration and the border, cost of living and the economy. A new NBC poll shows that Trump has a 20-point advantage over Biden on the economy, wow. even though it's a very kind of mixed bag when we talk about the economy, you look at the different factors, you see uh, 
job growth is doing well. You have the stock market is surging of late in the last two months, but people still are not feeling it when it comes to cost of living. A uh, November 2023 poll, uh, all in it together poll, found that while women still think that abortion is a big issue for them, cost of living was exactly the same. The same amount of people, the same amount of women uh, listed that as a top concern and only 13% saying it was not particularly important. Uh, so, you know, abortion is a mixed bag and Donald Trump is taking a more moderate view uh, on abortion and track, even though he says he is proud uh, that he has went so-called terminated Roe v. Wade, and a lot of uh, voters in that survey took exception to that terminology, he has said he has called the uh, heartbeat bill, you know, not a great thing, and he has tried to play abortion down. Uh, certainly, we will see uh, the Democrats make it a central issue in the campaign. But how does that compare to what um, what women are feeling in terms of the pocketbook issues that they have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to focus more on what these women are thinking and feeling. One of them in her response said, I know I should have a stronger opinion on this, referring to abortion. Why do you think women have been kind of drilled into believing over the years that they need to have a strong opinion when it comes to the topic of abortion. I'm curious, is this something you've seen just with abortion or in other instances as well? Well, I think with abortion, it depends on, you know, there was a lot of women in that group that you mentioned that were older. Mm -hmm. And so it's not mm -hmm. as a big of an issue for them. Um, I think it affects, obviously, people of childbearing age more. And certainly, you know, there's a mixed view on abortion. We found when we've done surveys uh, at Real Clear Politics, along with uh, your network, that there's a very nuanced view when you're talking about late-term abortions yeah. uh, mm -hmm. versus the women and exceptions for rape and the life of the mother. Uh, I think that a lot of women are not monolithic in their views on abortion, and so that doesn't translate um, to the polls as well. And it's certainly when we're talking about, you know, the prices at the pump have been very high for so long. They came down a little bit, but now they're creeping back up. And you go to the grocery store and you're not seeing that inflation come down. And interest rates, cost of living is incredibly high, especially with housing costs. And people are not able to even reduce that by buying another house because they'll lose your interest rate. I think the pressures that women um, are always facing when they go to the grocery store, men too, but uh, we've... We feel it uh, very acutely. I, uh, just last night, I was at the grocery store and I paid $6 for a loaf of bread that I usually pay $5 for oh my gosh. Um, or even mm -hmm. less. So I think, you know, it's something that we have not seen at the grocery store, those prices come down. Yeah, people are concerned about feeding their families, first and foremost. Um, Susan, could you paint a picture of how impactful this demographic, demographic will be in the outcome of the election, specifically this year? You know, this is um, it's interesting because we see in a new NBC News poll that Biden is leading with women by six percentage points. Now, he led in, in the 2020 election. He had double digits uh, with women. So we're seeing that those numbers come down. And, I, and to me, it's because of the economy and also this great concern about immigration and the border. Mm -hmm. um, and also, mm -hmm. women care about national security as well. 
well. They see the issues. They're seeing a lot of uh, conflict, especially in the Middle East, that are just deeply concerning. But certainly the bread and butter issues are weighing equally. So it's it's if Biden does not have that big lead, um, women, that he had in 2020, that's only already uh, showing to be a deep concern because he needs to have that lead with women to win the election. Mm, I see. Susan Crabtree, this has mm. been very insightful. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom on this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, a woman who has broken barriers on behalf of the church and the unborn for decades. Helen Alvarez explains the next political and social steps in the pro-life movement. You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. Hundreds of faithful, including clergy and laity, gathered early this morning in Washington, D.C. at the annual National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. The breakfast was founded as an answer to Pope St. John Paul II's call for a new evangelization. This year, they awarded Professor Helen Alvarez with the Christi Fidelis Laici Award, which highlights the good works of the laity who serve the church. Alvarez is the Robert A. Levy Endowed Chair in Law and Liberty at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. She's used her legal mind and pro-life prowess in her advisory roles to U.S. bishops and even the Vatican. After the overturn of Roe versus Wade, Helen joined us to share her wisdom about the next steps for the church on life. Let's take a look. Helen Alvarez, professor and associate dean of academic affairs at the Antonin Scalia Law School, joins me now to discuss this more. Helen, thanks so much for being here. Throughout this episode, we've talked to legal experts and pro-life advocates who've laid out a pretty straightforward case that unborn children should be given equal protection under the 14th Amendment. In your view, if it's that simple, what factors are stopping the pro-life movement from embracing this avenue as a whole? Right. I think there might be a couple of things. Um, first, you know, this is not our first rodeo on this question. And uh, a lot of you are way young to remember this. But shortly after Roe versus Wade came down, there was a discussion of a human life amendment. We came achingly close mm. to amending the Constitution to protect the unborn from abortion and, and other threats. <clears throat> and I think there is a fear that there would be a great deal of effort put into it and uh, and that it wouldn't succeed. So I think that is stopping some pro-life groups from doing it. Um, I think there's also a good deal of political influence uh, going on here. Everybody has noticed 
the um, number of articles that say, hey, Republican Party, slow down, you know, chill. Um, you might be scaring people off if you seek to protect the unborn for too many weeks, you know, of their prenatal existence. Right. So, you know, be reasonable, make sure there's plenty of weeks left to have an abortion. And I think some people who are thinking about this politically say, if we can't get people elected and we can't therefore get the right judges appointed, uh, then actually we're shooting ourselves in the foot to be arguing for something that is um, such a, a broad protection for unborn life. So I think, again, to summarize, part is history, part is politics, and, and the fear that we, we couldn't get it done and maybe do some political damage. I think that's what those who are you know slowing it down might be thinking. Sure, sure. And you talk about this aspect of history, and we know that obviously Roe versus Wade changed the way people think about abortion. Talk to me about this concept of so-called women's autonomy and how that's right. impacted the way people, people think about abortion, the, the killing of an innocent life. Right. So... First, you know, it's obvious that whenever something is made legal, people think it can't be that bad. <laughs> Everybody's allowed to do it. Right. Second, if you look at the language of Roe, but even more so the campaign for legal abortion that it strengthened, what you see is Roe is full of a litany of women's woes for being pregnant and raising children. And it posited motherhood as some kind of zero-sum game where every gain for the child is a loss for, for his or her mother. Mm. And the language of autonomy, which you know in its root means a law unto oneself, autonomous, became popular vis-a-vis -vis, you know, women's desire to be more free, the, the, what was called at that time the women's liberation movement. But of course, and we can discuss this more in a few, um, the idea that we are laws unto ourselves or not completely mutually interdependent with others is simply not reality. Mm. Yes. And some people in the pro-life movement bring up what they call the autonomy of the unborn child, Helen. But are babies in the womb really autonomous? I think I think we're hitting <laughs> right on your point. They need their right. mother and father to survive even once they're born. Right. I, I think what they're referring to there is the, the, the separate independent existence that demands respect. Right. Mm -hmm. And the at the origin of respect for life is is not killing. Right. So um, I think when they use the language of autonomy for the unborn, that's what they're getting at. Um, really to, to, to hold up again what what should be obvious, but we continue to have to hold up is this is human. This is alive and must be respected. Yes, yes. And Helen, advocates of the 14th Amendment say that establishing protections for unborn babies under the 14th Amendment is an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. And I know you're a legal expert. Can you just explain for our viewers what that means to interpret the Constitution right. from an originalist perspective? So that this is an important argument, and I think it has legs. Um, so to say that we make an originalist argument about the Constitution means that we ask, what was its meaning at the time that provision of the Constitution was enacted? 14th Amendment, that the state shall not deny, you know, without due process, um, life to, to persons. Um, the argument will be made that in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was passed, people understood the unborn child as life. In fact, 
scientists had discovered the events of fertilization, the female ova, you know, in the early 19th century. We know that um, all the states, either right around 1868 or shortly afterwards, uh, amended their abortion law so that it protected human life from birth, yes. or excuse me, from conception through birth and after. Uh, and this was true of the territories that came into the United States after the passage of the 14th Amendment. So in summary, the original public meaning of the word life in the 14th Amendment at the time it was ratified, and in the years after, when people were expressing their understanding of it, would have included unborn human beings. Right. And, and that would be the originalist case. And it makes a lot of sense. It seems that there are some differences, shifting kind of to, you know, the political aspect of all of this, as you mentioned before. There are some differences of opinion among people in our movement about how to move forward. And while there are clearly people in our country who are either strongly pro-life or strongly pro-abortion, there are also a lot of people in the middle who might be ambivalent. How do we capture their support and, and really get them yeah. to care about this? I have tried to think about this a great deal. <laughs> The first thing is that the pro-life movement shouldn't be upset that there's differences of opinion. Um, before my time in it, during my time, and after my time, people have been disagreeing. Mm. But we should give each other credit for doing it in good faith and with the common aim of trying to extend protection to vulnerable life. So that would be my first point. Second, um, if we start engaging in the gamesmanship of what's politically acceptable, protect from conception, six weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks. I think we're playing on the wrong territory. To me, and, and I'm very inspired by Pope Benedict, who wrote about this, interestingly, in a book on interfaith relations called mm. Truth and Tolerance, but he wrote about the abortion issue. And he said what I believe is true, and I think we need to communicate. The abortion issue is like a proxy for the whole question of whether we acknowledge that the very structure of human existence is interdependent, is relational. And I don't think we should speak about a law that protects unborn life without saying America or my state, that's where you're arguing it. Abortion is really a conversation about whether we respect other human lives, whether in particular we respect vulnerable lives, whether we are willing to take responsibility for the lives given to us, whether childhood, motherhood, family, you know, our future is of importance to us in the United States. Mm. And, yeah. and in this context of respecting reality, the, the interdependent, you know, good Samaritan mutual care that is required for those strewn on our path, we ask you to consider our pro-life proposal. We ask you to consider extending protection to the unborn. You know, America, my state, whoever we're talking to, that we would like to protect that life from its beginning, right? From its very beginning. Right. But we also will do what is feasible at this time with the understanding that we don't stop there. Right. That we do everything we can until we can convince you in this pluralistic democracy of the same respect for human life that we feel. Mm -hmm. I just think, Prudence, that a conversation about, you know, which weeks or which protections that does not include an exhortation toward respecting, you know, the structure of human life and our need for one another and our care for the vulnerable is not a winning conversation. Yeah, well said. And I mean, that's really what makes this 
a human issue, right? Thinking of the other before ourselves. Helen, I have one more question before I let you go. There are seven candidates who have announced they're running on the Republican side for president and pretty much across the board, their stances on abortion are murky at this point. What would be your one piece of advice to them? To do what I just described as saying to people, I'm pro-life, I would like to extend protection to all human life, but I also realize that I'm in a democracy and I will go as far as I can go because that's who we are as Americans, people who appreciate the necessity of taking care of those strewn in our paths, Good Samaritan style, and I want to exhort you to go as far as you can go in that, and I will agree to protect life as far as we can in this democracy and always be exhorting you to greater care. Again, announce the principle. Tell people who you really think we are as Americans on our best day and try to bring them along with you. Well said. Thank you so much, Helen. You are an asset to our movement, and we're so grateful for all the work that you've done on, on this issue over the years. Thanks for joining us. Helen Thank you Alvarez. for having me, and all the best to you, too. God bless you. You can watch EWTN's live coverage of this morning's National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, including Helen Alvarez's speech, on our EWTN YouTube page. For now, that does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.